My name is Tracy Bianchi. I serve as one of the pastors here on staff, and it is my joy this morning to lead us through what is now our second week in a sermon series called Shiny Objects. Last week, our senior pastor, Dan Meyer, began a conversation with us about what it means to detangle and move away from the shiny objects, the idols in our lives that keep us from giving God our full worship, our full trust, our full devotion. Now, idols come in many forms, and in ancient cultures, they were often actual physical statues or items that communities of people would choose to bow down and worship to. And they would literally distract themselves physically from one idol to the next. Whatever god or goddess promised health or wealth or prosperity or relief from a famine or whatever it is that they might have been working through in the ancient world, they would literally physically turn themselves away from idols. Now today, our distractions and our idols are a little less obvious, but nonetheless sophisticated. We can make idols of just about everything. Many good things in our lives become idols over time. And many things were never good, but they are our idols nonetheless. Perhaps we gaze towards fame or comfort, a bigger house, a better job. Our careers can become our idols. Our kids can become our idols. Financial status, recreation, youth sports, activities that were once meant to be good for us eventually lead us to addictions and distractions and obsessions that keep us from God and from friends that we love. Perhaps idols come to us in pursuit of a bigger scholarship, a better alma mater, the opportunity to hang the winning college football flag outside your front door on a weekend, Maybe it's your NFL team, it's a boat, a second home, a third home, a vacation, whatever it might be. To be clear, these are not necessarily bad things, but when they become our idols and the primary source of our attention, they ruin so much of the opportunity that we have to give God the glory and the honor that he's due. Hosea 10 talks about a divided heart, divided loyalty. Scripture tells us we can only worship one master, and that is to be God. And so last week, we started on a journey through Deuteronomy, and we looked at chapter 28. And so if you've got your scriptures with you, you're going to spend some time there today, and we're going to talk about Luke 12 as well. So pull out your phone or pull out your Bible and maybe find your way through Deuteronomy 28 and eventually Luke 12. Deuteronomy says this. It helps us anchor our conversation for this morning. He is telling, God is telling the Israelites that they're to put God first. And he talks through the Ten Commandments and the ways that they're supposed to live. And he says, if they do this, this, this is what will happen. He says, the Lord will open the heavens and the storehouse of his bounty to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but you will borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. 
Do not turn aside from any of the commands that I give you today, to the right or to the left, following other gods or serving them. Now, as a reminder, God has just released his people, the Israelites, from years of slavery in Egypt. They have just become a free people in charge of their own lives. And God is eager for them not to become enslaved again, to become enslaved and ensnared to systems and ideas and oppressive idolatry. He wants them to experience God's blessing and presence. He says, if you follow me, you are not going to be enslaved again. You will experience sufficient provision, which is the well-stocked storehouse. He wants us to use our resources to help others, to lend to many nations. He wants it to be that his people would not live under the burden of debt. He says, borrow from no one. And he wants it to be that God's people would call the shots in their own lives, that would not live under another, under the leadership and rules and the idols of another. The secret here, we're told, is not to chase shiny objects, which is so hard because shiny objects abound, right? I'm distracted a million times a day by glittering ideas, by workaholic tendencies, by the fact that I just confess I love to shop, I love stuff, I love my kids, I'm obsessed with their sports. None of them are here right now because they are on athletic fields. I'm a preacher and my kids are playing soccer right now. I'm just going to confess that to you. Uh, you can ask for my resignation after if you'd like. <laughs> can't believe I, that was not in my script, let's just be honest. I, I don't know. <laughs> um, okay, where are we at? Okay. Uh, how many of you have ever, uh, have ever gone to an all-inclusive resort? Any of you? There's sort of this uh, crazy, indulgent, and borderline obnoxious um, creation of the past, you know, couple decades of travel and, and luxury life. Uh, my parents went to uh, gift our whole family with a week at this Caribbean all-inclusive resort. It was their anniversary. It was a big milestone anniversary, and so they wanted to gift the whole family, our kids, everybody. And uh, what I, I, we had never been to an all-inclusive resort before, and what we learned when we got there was that there were buffets everywhere, that you could just eat anything you wanted any time you wanted. And if you wanted to go up to the buffet by the pool and that buffet happened to be closed or not have an item you wanted, you could go to the buffet by the other pool. And if all the poolside buffets were closed, you could go to the indoor buffets. And if for some reason the indoor buffets weren't doing it for you, you could go to um, order room service. And uh, even if the buffets were closed, the uh, fountain soda was always available. And my kids were little at the time. And uh, when we got there, they had Sprite breakfast, lunch, and dinner for several days. Uh, they were very excited. And soft serve ice cream. Chocolate, vanilla, or the swirl. You could put it in a cone. You could put it on a cup. It was awesome. And the first couple of days we were there, we did laps around the resort, just eating stuff because we could. And we would literally get Sprite in the ice cream cone, and then we would walk over. We'd be like, let's see what's over here. And we would just try to eat again. And as the week went on, it started to get a little ridiculous. And on the last night at the resort, knowing that most vacationers had been there a week, and we were about to go home, and a new batch of... Um, you know, eaters was about to come. 
we, uh, we, we had uh, an experience. They unveiled a chocolate buffet for the last night. And uh, people were lined up a half an hour before the chocolate buffet started, and they would bring plates of food with them from other buffets to eat in line while they were waiting for the chocolate buffet to open. Which I was like, are you even kidding me? But people did this, and I was like, okay, well, I guess, you know, everybody has their way here. And, uh, you know, chocolate buffet, I'm going to make some of you hungry right now, but I mean everything. There was a chocolate fountain and fondue and chocolate dipped strawberries and fruits and chocolate chip cookies and brownies and dark chocolate and white chocolate and this chocolate raspberry cheesecake thing. And uh, it just was on and on and on. And as we were walking down the buffet line, I was like, I can't. I have had enough. I have had enough. And even my kids, who I thought there was no end to the possible sugar intake that they could, they could create in their lives, they, they were like, I, I can't. We, we had just had enough. How much is enough? How much do we really need when it comes to any of the good stuff in our lives? A recent edition of Forbes magazine asked the same question around money and around the top earning billionaires of the world. How much is enough? One more dollar? At what point are we satisfied? And this, of course, is the question that people like Warren Buffett or Melinda Gates have asked over the past couple decades of American life. And I confess that I look at someone like them who's decided how much is enough and decided to give their surplus away, and I say, well, easy for them. They have a surplus. I would say about myself, I don't yet have a surplus. If I do not think deeply into my life, I will say, well, I still have children who are going through elementary and middle school and high school, and we're going to have to pay for college, and we've got kitchen cabinets that are falling apart, and we want to go on a vacation, and my kids have never been to Yellowstone, so we want to do that. And I would say, I don't have a surplus yet. And I fool myself, and I say, someday I will have enough. And then I can give some of my surplus to the things of God. Does yet ever happen? Do we ever, ever feel like we have enough when we live with the same mindset and the same practices that our culture tells us work today? We don't have to be Warren Buffett or Melinda Gates or we don't have to be standing in front of a chocolate buffet to ask ourselves this question. There's a moment in Jesus' ministry where he is once again teaching, as he does, and he's in the book of Luke. And he's gathered with some Pharisees, and he's arguing with the Pharisees. This is late enough in his ministry that they're frustrated with him, and he keeps calling them out on the false idols that they chase in their lives. And he offers this really sharp rebuke. He's like, woe to you who posture yourselves over one another, who put status and power over the things of God. And he just lays into them. It's the end of Luke 11. And scripture says when Jesus went outside after this sort of rant on the Pharisees, they began to oppose him fiercely because he was challenging their idols. And they began to besiege him with questions. And they wanted to trip him up and catch him, Scripture says, in something he might say. And he leaves, and there must have been crowds by this time following him. Because Scripture says at the beginning of Luke 12 that meanwhile, 
as he's exiting this, this, this woe to you, this rant with the Pharisees, we're told, meanwhile, a crowd of many thousands had gathered. They were trampling on one another, scripture says. And then Jesus begins to speak. And he begins to still tell a few stories, parables. And what he begins to talk about are the idols of their time and of our time. He begins to tell stories about enough. Someone in the crowd, scripture says, said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide his inher the inheritance with me. That Jesus is preaching and someone raises their hand in the middle and asks Jesus to mediate a dispute they're having. Tell me who gets the stuff, who gets all of the enough. And Jesus replies sharp, he says, man, he says, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then Jesus said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, and he thought to himself, well, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, ah, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And then I will say to myself, you've plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you, and then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. This is a parable about enough. And I want to walk through three things today that get at our idea of enough. Two of them are idols of our time, and one is a snare, a trap of our time. Money, work, and debt. Aren't you glad you're here? <laughs> How many of you just cringed a little bit? When Dan Meyer handed me this preaching date, I cringed. I was like, wow, this is hard stuff. Have you ever gone a week or even a day without talking about one of those three things? These are the things that consume the lives of most Americans. And they consumed the lives of the people at the time of Jesus. Jesus teaches 38 parables. 16 of them are about money, work, and debt. These are conversations that people of faith have to have to be able to honor God and let go of some of the idols of our lives. The first thing I want you to notice and the first thing I want to talk about is work. Notice in this parable that Jesus does not say work is bad. Jesus does not indicate that this man's abundant harvest was a bad thing. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. The soil was tilled. The work was done. The passage we read earlier from Deuteronomy, if you flip back there, says that a bountiful harvest, fruit of our labor, work, is one of the ways that God blesses his people. It's not work that Jesus is going after here. God does not have, Jesus does not have here the negative view of work that some of us hold today. In both passages, like I said, work is the reason for the initial comfort. It's the reason we can have sustenance. It's a way of blessing. In Genesis 2, God tells us that we are to work. We're to work 
the garden. God himself worked. He gave creative effort and energy to bringing the world into creation. And after he worked, he rested. And these things are not condemned. They are honored. In Genesis 3, after the fall of humanity, we see that work is tainted by the fall and that it is possible to suffer back-breaking toil and labor without the rewards that God promises. And this is part of the curse of our time. But we're invited to get out from under a mindset that either is obsessed with financial success with work as the end goal of our lives, or that views work as a necessary means to an end. Every Monday, one of my friends and I text, uh, it's usually some snarky meme from Amy Poehler, and we text it like Monday. If any of you use your emojis or whatever, right, it's just there's always these Monday things that happen. And if you've watched The Office, or if you've ever seen Office Space, or you know the Geico commercial with Hump Day, right? I mean, these are the narratives, the mantras of our time. We live for the weekend. Work has become a four-day word, or four-letter uh, four word for many of us. I wish it was four days, right? No, just kidding. And by work, uh, I want to be clear. I mean what we do to sustain ourselves. There are at-home parents who work very hard. So I want to be clear, work is not just leaving the house from nine to five. Actually, research suggests that if an at-home parent brought in a salary, they would make about $113,000 a year. That's about the value, the marketplace value that an at-home parent brings. And I also want to be clear that I know there are people who want to work but can't who want to contribute meaningfully, but are either physically unable or there are systems of oppression that keep people who want to work from actually participating in the workforce in a meaningful way. So I want to honor those realities as well. For many of us, though, work has become an idol. And because we've idolized it, it's something that upsets and unsettles us and we're stressed out by it because we want to achieve and we want to get on the machine to do it better. And so we're stressed by it. We've seen parents and friends who work too long and too hard. Perhaps fame and notoriety in the workplace became their idol. We're so eager to get out from under the burden of this idol that we talk about retiring early. We use words like overworked. We label some people as workaholics. We go on and on about the daily grind. But here's what's interesting. God created work so that we could be in partnership with him. When work is happening as God created it to be, it means we take the gifts and the passions and the talents and the skills that God has given us and we use them to bring the creative purposes of God to life. We link ourselves as a creative force with the God of the universe. Ephesians 2 says, for we are God's handiwork. We are God's creation created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. Work, when treated properly, is an opportunity to be a creative force for good in the world. Whether you are waiting tables or building rockets, it is an opportunity to partner with God and to bring God's purposes into whatever it is that you 
have been blessed to do. Work. So what then do we do with the fruit of our labor? The second conversation for today, money, income. In our culture, we would say we work sometimes for the income. This is why we make ourselves so frenetic around the topic of work. We talk about earnings and profits and savings, and we teach that income is what ultimately matters. It's the assumption that we will go in at an entry-level job and we will work our way up, that our income will grow, that our starting salary will eventually become a significant retirement, and we are concerned with the income that goes with our work. God wants us to remember that it's the outcomes that matter. That work is something we do so that we can put food on our tables and have a roof over our heads. But after that, when do we say enough? And when do we honor the fact that we work so that we can find freedom to be with our families? We can find opportunities to enjoy the fruits of our labors. That we can settle in and be satisfied with a certain number of hours a day and the opportunity to rest in that and the opportunity to enjoy having been a creative partner with God. The gentleman in this parable, we're told, thinks to himself after he's generated a lot of income, he says, well, I don't know what to do now, so I'm going to build myself bigger barns, I'm going to tear down these, I'm going to build those, and I'm going to take all this surplus, and I'm going to say to myself, you've got plenty of income laid up for many years. Is that the outcome that God wants? Because I guarantee at that time in history, there were people next door to this man with no barns at all. And there were people surrounding him with no food to eat. And if all we're concerned with is building up the income and storing it so we can generate more, what outcome that honors God does that bring? So he takes his surplus and he builds a bigger barn because income is what matters to him, not the outcome that he can do with what he's been given. I mean, to have an income clearly is not foolish, but to work for income alone is folly. It's the reminder we receive in Matthew 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Is your heart, is your idol the income or the outcome, the good works that we can do with the resources God has given us? Researching on emerging generations has me so hopeful for the future. If you uh, ask millennials what they want from the workplace, they are considerably more likely to say that the salary, the income, is not ultimately what matters to them. That some of them will negotiate in their first job more vacation time and a lower salary so that they can enjoy the outcome of their labor, so that they can spend time with the families that they have. And many of them have watched their parents literally work themselves to death in some situations with anxiety and everything that comes with it. 
And they will say, we want a better outcome here. We want to work and use our creative potential in a way that matters. Work and income. We want to be a creative force for God's good. We want to focus on the outcome, not the income. And lastly today, we want to live with freedom. We want to work and we want to celebrate the good things God has given us. And we want to avoid debt. Because we have lived into a false narrative that has said, if I build the bigger barn, I am better. And sometimes we will build the bigger barn when we don't have the resources to build the bigger barn. And our income isn't coming in fast enough. And we want to fill our barns with stuff. Because everything at West Elm and Pottery Barn or Home Depot or whatever it is looks really, really good in our barns. Some of you might be familiar with um, Marie Kondo. If you haven't heard of her, um, I'll tell you who she is. If you have heard of her, you would know that uh, she is um, sort of this phenom right now in our culture who wrote a book called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. It's been translated into 40 different languages. She's sold some 11 million copies of this book. She's got a Netflix special. And her whole thing is about managing our stuff. Because most of us have grabbed after stuff that we don't have space for in our lives or, in our, or, or had the finances to acquire. And if you've ever done any of her work, we've organized a few things in our house. It's hilarious. It actually, it actually works. Uh, my neighbors will say, we're Marie Kondoing this weekend. It's like become a verb. It's very funny. Um, and while she is not a person at all who claims Christian faith, her book, interestingly, is not categorized as home improvement. It's categorized as spirituality. Because she talks about the way we find freedom in our hearts and our souls and we lighten up when we release our attachment to stuff. We love stuff. So much so that we have not been able to go to the buffet of things in life and say, enough. And so millions and millions of us are living in a way that God never intended. We're living under the burden of debt. We're living, as that scripture in Deuteronomy says, at the bottom and not at the top. Other people are calling the shots in our lives because we have believed that that trinket or that item that we don't have the resources for is somehow going to improve something for us. And we haven't trusted that God knows how to improve our lives. We have filled our barns with life-choking things. How many of you, when I said the word debt today, your heart kind of sunk? I mean, let's be clear, though. Not all debt is bad. And at the risk of getting into an investment seminar that I am not qualified to give, there's two kinds of debt, and I'll just say a couple words on this. There's investment debt and consumer debt. Investment debt is what we occur, incur when we, we take out a mortgage on our home or our, or our church building. It's what you incur when you take out a loan to finance an education or do capital improvements for your business. It's good if it sows the seeds of a God-honoring future. And it's reasonable if you have a very clear way to get out from under it. Consumer debt is different. That is, of course, what we incur with our credit cards and our layaway plans. 41% of American households carry significant credit card debt. The average American carries over $10,000 in credit card debt. 
we owe as a country over $1 trillion in debt. This becomes a problem, and this we're talking about in church because of a few reasons. The first is that it worries us. This creates great anxiety. This is a stomach clench. This is a moment where we find ourselves thinking, how can I get out from under this instead of how can I live for God? And our prayers become about releasing ourselves from this burden instead of finding a way to honor God and be free. And we're afraid that when the phone rings or the mailbox opens up or the, the, the credit card update text comes through or whatever it is, we, we, we live with great anxiety. God does not want us to live like this. He does not want us to live under the burden of debt. And so we need to get out from underneath it because it worries us. It creates fear and anxiety. And these are not feelings that God intended us to live with. He wants us to live with freedom to honor and worship him. And second, uh, it means we can't invest in God's causes because we're paying off alone because we're, we're worried about all of these things and we don't have resources to give to a neighbor in need. We don't have resources then to give to God's causes. We see people in need and we see opportunities to partner with God in the furthering of his kingdom and we can't participate because we are saturated, some of us, with debt. So great is the pressure to build the idols that other people have that we are willing to go on this journey to debt. And we want to honor the fact that that is not what God called us to do. In this parable, it's interesting. He built bigger barns. What happens one year if the harvest wasn't quite good? What happens if he built the barn and he financed too much and he filled it with too much stuff? Is there a possibility this person in this parable lives potentially perilously and is under the burden and the idolatry of stuff? If you're in that place, please know we are not beating you up here at church. We actually, um, we've actually had this amazing opportunity that some folks in our congregation um, have, have embarked on an adventure. And I just, before I close here, I just want to tell you quickly about this. Uh, there's this great opportunity called Financial Peace University. And we've run this class a few times here at Christ Church. There's been 130 households from Christ Church that have gone through it. They have relieved themselves of half a million dollars in consumer debt by learning about spiritual practices to get out from underneath and practical life steps. And so while we were talking about this topic, we wanted you to know today that there's one of these coming up in June. And that may be a way that you find yourself an opportunity to get out from under whatever it is that God might um, be burdening you with. But the invitation here, bigger than debt, is to step back and look at the idols of our time, the idols of our lives. And I want to invite you this week to ask yourself a few questions. Type these into your phone, write them down. First of all, why do you work? Why do you work? Is it for the income or the outcome? Are you a creative force? For the good of God or are you just getting through the week and if you're getting through the week how can you reframe what you're doing and why you're doing it and who you're serving when you do it what consumer lies have you believed what have you said yeah that that's what I need that's what I have to have if I'm gonna succeed that thing have you believed any lies I certainly have I promise you I have 
And I have to repent of that regularly. Have you gone into debt believing those lies? And if you have, what steps will you take to get out from underneath that? So that God can be glorified in your life. And so that you are not living under that tremendous burden as God invites us in Deuteronomy. Jesus in John 10 reminds us that the thief comes to steal and destroy. And God says, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And what God wants for us is this idle free life where the only shiny object we really see is God himself. And that we would orient our lives to the God of the universe so that he can be good on his promises and help us have life to the full. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for the gift of a space to have some intricate, hard conversations. God, you, um, you lead us and guide us into so many great things. Help us understand how to navigate some of the tricky waters, Lord, around the idols of our lives and around work and around money and debt. God, your word tells us that if we orient our hearts to you and orchestrate our lives to follow, that indeed we will bear fruit and that we will be people known by our love and our grace. We will be free from that which creates anxiety and stress. And we will get to honor you with our lives. So Lord, may we be found faithful to that task. In the name of Jesus, everyone together said, Amen. Thank you.